0: All right. And Dr. Baldwin returns to talk mental health with Logan Noon. You were on uh, with your colleague, Dr. Brady and Nicholas. I don't remember which episode. I'll write it in the description. But uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on today. And we talk quite a bit whenever I come and visit you in the hallways. it's So it seems like I feel like we always should be doing podcast episodes.
1: Thank you, Logan. I, I, it's always a pleasure talking to you either officially on the record or off the record. There we go, mostly off the record. Thanks for asking me to uh, come back for another podcast.
0: Yeah, so uh, the listeners, this is Dr. Uh, Mark Baldwin. You started here, oh, a couple years ago. Year and a half. Yeah, but, you know, long career. Uh, You were a nephrologist, so that's a kidney specialist for you who don't uh, know what that word means. He uh, deal, of course, with people with kidney issues, hypertension issues, you served in the Navy, correct? Um, you've just had a wild life. And so today what we're going to talk about is when you kind of wanted to throw in your towel into medicine, hang it all up, and you were over it, but clearly you're not. You're sitting here with one or two gray hairs in front of me and still trudging along, working hard, um, you know, and putting everything kind of into this career path that's very noble and very inspirational. But also one idea that you talk about quite frequently uh, is the idea of doctors unionizing, and that's one idea of, I've heard you throw around how my generations of doctors should handle healthcare moving forward. Um, so yeah, let's just, let's just kind of get into it. Okay. So yeah. where did uh, so where did your medical career kind of start?
1: Um, I went to medical school in Kansas City. I uh, graduated in 1983. Uh, Did my internship and subsequent residency on the south side of Chicago with the old Chicago Osteopathic Hospital, which unfortunately is no longer around, and then did my fellowship in kidney diseases at Loyola University in Chicago. Okay,
0: and all of your service time was then before medical school?
1: No, no. I had um, gotten drafted during Vietnam and was an Army medic, And then uh, in medical school, I signed up for a Navy scholarship. So in between my internship and residency, I had a three-year break to uh, go play Navy doctor. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, you've
0: seen the military aspect of medicine, you know, the inner city aspect of medicine. And then I also know at some point you worked, like, in private practice, right?
1: Yeah, after my fellowship in Chicago, I was in Columbus, Ohio for 21 years uh, in private practice. And uh, I've always been involved in education and was looking to do more full-time education and less uh, clinical practice. Okay. So that's kind of how I ended up here as department chair. So, you
0: know, back when you were my age... Uh, I'm certainly not a young I, va- lad. I vaguely
1: remember those yeah, days yeah yes. right
0: so you know early in your career was there this talk at all of burnout in the medicinal profession or or like doctors not liking their jobs kind of thing
1: there's always been a component of disgruntled doctors and as in any other profession uh, I have to look back at my mentors uh, the people who, shaped me to be the doctor I am today. I never heard any of them say that. They had frustrations, but they still love doing what they did. And something I still love doing, and that's practicing medicine.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh,
1: unfortunately, things were not always that rosy. There was a large component of put up and shut up. Um, or I suffered when I was in training and it made me a good doctor, so you're going to suffer. Mm. To quote Nietzsche, if a man has a why of suffering, he can put up with almost any how. (laughs) The problem is suffering for suffering's sake uh, doesn't produce anything good.
0: Yeah. So when in your career was your first experience with, man, this was the wrong decision, or I don't want to be a doctor anymore, I'm just over this?
1: Um, probably my first job out of fellowship uh, was a uh, what looked how I ended up in Ohio uh, it looked like a really great practice situation I ended up being ex-partner number four uh, for a reason and I had kind of a um, loss of innocence which I never thought I would have but I did uh, I subsequently went out on my own and had very successful private practice for many years. Okay. Um,
0: so. Well, what made that first experience then so toxic where you just were over it?
1: It was the people I worked with. It was it was the uh, the physician I worked with who drove a lot of people away. Okay. Okay. But and to avoid getting sued, I will not mention any names. Yeah, that's,
0: that's a good idea. Yeah, let's keep lawsuits away from yeah. the podcast. Yeah. But so, I mean, even at that stage, it sounded like you weren't willing to hang up the towel of medicine completely. You just knew, this this job sucks. I need to change my right. job. And
1: once I went into my own practice and was able to do things the way I was trained, I fell back in love with being a doctor. Okay. Okay. So was
0: there any point in your career where you, you really you hated medicine, you wanted to leave medicine, quote-unquote, that for lack of a better word, burnout, that we hear so much about today?
1: Um, I've had burnout. I will be the first person to tell you that. But it was more of intolerable working situations rather than I hate being a doctor. Okay. Uh, I hated situations where I was on call indefinitely and rarely had days off. Okay. uh, Which for anybody would burn them out. Certainly. And. You know, having spent a good le- good part of my life sleep-deprived, um, as I get older, I don't find that I've ever adapted well to it.
0: Yeah. No, and I don't think it's natural. And it's one thing that, you know, I, I of course, live with bipolar disorder, and one of the things that can throw my bipolar disorder off the easiest is the lack of sleep. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing that it scares me uh, about my future responsibilities. I know, especially, like, in residency, I'm going to have to go on for long periods and not going to lie I'm very very nervous so I guess you know you said you you experienced burnout but it always seemed to be related to the job not so much the profession like were there ever any you know you've dealt with of course chronic kidney disease where people are on dialysis and lose their lives or whatever were there any experiences where because of patients Because you just kept having to say goodbye to patients Or you know, you felt like You were almost losing to, to kidney disease Where you got so frustrated With the state of medicine
1: You know Let me reframe it in a different way <clears throat> I've always enjoyed What I do But when you are being Emotionally drained on a daily basis Coupled with um, Sleep deprivation cu- Coupled with whether I'm going to get reimbursement for my services and that. And we in nephrology, I deal with very, very sick patients. And I, m- I describe my burnout as starting off the day with a pizza, and throughout the day everyone gets a piece, and at the end of the day I'm hungry and I have no pizza. Mm-hmm. To me, that's burnout. Mm-hmm. So what I want to ask you
0: about, you know, you sent me a couple articles I'm like physicians unionizing and I was just trying to do my own research. So in one article I read, it said in 1992 when Medicare adopted the relative value unit, RVU. And yeah, I get in for the listeners. Dr. Valder is uh, rolling his eyes so beautifully. So I want to ask, how did that impact your career satisfaction? And so I guess, can you also explain really what that meant for the listeners who don't know what we're talking about?
1: Um. For the last uh, 20, 30 years, I've been trying to figure out (laughs) what (laughs) an RVU is. Um, It has never made, most doctors, it makes no sense. It's a way we arbitrarily, uh, or non-physicians arbitrarily value what we do as physicians. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that um, this is, again, you know, in 1960, Shortly before he left the White House, President Eisenhower warned about the growing influence of the military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. There is, in the United States today, a medical-industrial complex. Big pharma, big health care, big insurance companies, and they have t- turned the, pr- the practice of medicine into a money-making proposition mm-hmm. rather than providing a service. If you look at what are the parameters that we look to, to judge a country or a society's state of health, such as infant mortality rate, such as screening for cancer, all the different parameters, the United States ranks at the bottom. Yeah. As a nephrologist, uh, we rank at the bottom worldwide in survival on dialysis, and this sure. is even when it's adjusted for age and comorbidities. We spend twice as much and more on health care, and we get a very poor return on our dollar. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because we're supporting a for-profit system. Yeah. There was a time up until the 80s when insurance companies and many healthcare uh, uh, hospital systems were non-profit. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, we began to have the emergence of the for-profit model. And I am sorry... But whenever you influence <coughs> the profit motive into healthcare, patients lose. Yeah, and it is very clear. We've seen staffs cut. We've had to do more with less, and we've had increasing patient dissatisfaction—not with the physicians, but with the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. You know, when generic drugs were first. Uh, touted as being cheaper and more affordable, now many insurance companies—you ha- have to use their recommended generic. Yeah, and it's taken our decision making away from us, even based when it's based on evidence-based medicine. And from my understanding, this
0: RVU—the relative value unit—it it minimized doctors' thinking ability. And and I guess put the value on doctors doing procedures and right. monetary returns. So did you see that adjustment impact your practice? Meaning did were people more likely to put uh, like kidney transplant or is dialysis technically a procedure? So would that be counted in this model of making more money than
1: I don't know. It it it, it is, but you also have strict indications for dialysis. I see. You have in in nephrology What happens is that <coughs> um, What was the question
0: again <laughs> Well basically Because I had a really good
1: answer I, just I know did that and did I,
0: I got you off the trade of thought So when the RVU system started right. Did it turn into People not wanting to go see the doctor To get their hypertension treated Or you know It seems like everyone wanted to go more to the procedure medicine. And from my limited understanding of this, this change made surgeons extremely wealthy and primary care doctors, which I I mean, of course, you're a specialist, but you started off as an internist, primary care. And I'm still an internist. Yeah. I'm proud to say. (laughs) Yeah. Minimized their monetary <coughs> value, kind of yeah. thing, in the system. And
1: I think that I, what the point is not only just surgeons, but you are paid more to do procedures, you know, and not that I'm picking on any specialties, but heart catheterizations, upper and lower endoscopies, those kind of things were, were very financially um, attractive. Uh, and uh, that drove a lot of recommendations, not always based on a wealth of evidence-based medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were valued for how many patients you could turn over rather than the depth and the complexity of patients. Face it, what we deal with is people-driven medicine. Yeah. And especially in nephrology, like a lot of other specialties where we're dealing with a lot of chronic illness, the interaction, the personal interaction means so much and you don't get paid for that. That doesn't mean I didn't do it. I did it because I felt it was the right thing to do as did a lot of other physicians. (coughs) We also saw that uh, I worked for a a federally qualified health system Mm -hmm. after I gave up my practice uh, I tended to see the very complicated patients with multi system disease, and I was, my visits were, were valued the same as, say, a nurse practitioner or a PA seeing less complicated patients. For example, a high school physical, a sprained ankle, they counted that the same as me seeing a patient with diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease elevated cholesterol, and chronic kidney disease.
0: And the reimbursement was based on (coughs) per patient, not Complexity. Yeah, right? So that that high school uh, physical probably lasted 10, 15 minutes. Your encounter must last 40 minutes, right?
1: Yeah, or I was told you're you're not making your numbers, and Mm -hmm. this was the nemesis of taking care of complicated patients. And what we saw were some groups, not only of primary care but also specialists, it tended to weed out the more complicated patients where they weren't going to make money on. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying that was all over, but yeah. I can but I happens. can think of some examples where financially it was not considered profitable.
0: Well, and that so in this article that you sent me that I was reading, <coughs> one of the things that most kind of stood out to me the most. Let me see if I can find the article or the quote. But it was essentially, you know, the widget that a hospital produces, the value that the hospital produces, is the relationship between the patient and the uh, provider. It's a very special bond that's just unlike any other bond we have in society. But then if we look at the metrics that hospitals measure themselves on, it's not really on that relationship. They measure how many patients are we seeing and what are the costs kind of thing. And so what is your opinion on, it seems like doctors these age can get financial bonuses, the more patients they see. If they mm-hmm. hit an extra 50 visits right. in a month or something, they might get whatever bonus. And these articles talked a lot about how that's, that's taking away from that special widget of the relationship between the, the patient and the provider.
1: Uh, let me give you an example. Um, when I was in full-time practice, I had uh, a dialysis unit I was a medical director of. I had a couple other dialysis units where I had patients. And I was expected to see every patient once a week. And <clears throat> in stable patients, a lot of my visit was kind of how are you doing? Anything you need? And a lot of it was basically me saying, "Hey, there's somebody who cares about you." And I think that has become devalued and has become cheapened, like another, all, many other aspects of of our society. Mm-hmm. And patients appreciate the fact that somebody cares about them. That's why we have doctors. That's why the doctor-patient relationship I hold very sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, listening to you thus
0: far, and I don't think this is really how you feel, but at least in this episode, what maybe the listeners have heard is, is you know, your experiences with burnout, you've been in, in these bad Work environments, but you of course were able to find Better work environments Now is that your suggestion To future doctors Like myself, kind of look at this As there's always a better option Down the road, or is um, How else do you <coughs> handle this besides just Switching jobs
1: kind of thing um, There are only so Many places one can go I mm-hmm. uh, I have uh, my current position now is Department Chair of Internal Medicine here at Pacific Northwest University uh, I'm predominantly in, involved in academics, teaching and research mm-hmm. and uh, about uh, 15, 20 percent of my time is actual clinical, Mm -hmm. um, which I still enjoy doing. As I like to say, it keeps my uh, street credibility going. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen too many times, it seems, when doctors and nurses put down the stethoscope and become administrators, they quickly forget what it was like to be a physician Mm -hmm. or a nurse. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's important for people to stay in touch with, you know, what they're doing and what they're advising people to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that um, we are facing a big, um, a large, as I mentioned, the medical-industrial complex Mm -hmm. where you get the very distinct feeling that you can be replaced with another warm body. Yeah. But that doesn't really... um, lead to really happy employees. Certainly. I mean, not that we have some unique esoteric knowledge, but each of us brings our unique um, point of view into any kind of practice situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the cheapening of uh, our contribution—the fact that we're called providers and not physicians—we mm. uh, have a title that we earn when we graduate from medical school. That's doctor, and it's not provider. Mm. And uh, I understand this was a term invented by insurance companies and big healthcare companies. Uh, certainly not driven by the physician.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and you kind of showed me a, a quick graphic that I kind of want to bring up. So. You know, you mentioned some of the uh, more seasoned um, (coughs) physicians moving into administrative roles. Maybe they don't have a clinical practice anymore. But that being said, I would much rather have a seasoned doctor be in an administrative role than like an MBA that has a master's in business administration. Someone who doesn't have any real clinical knowledge. And they're just there for the bottom line profit margin. So... How how have you seen that impact your practice? With so many more administrators, administrative jobs being created than physician jobs being created.
1: Physicians in the United States have frankly abandoned our role as the primary advocate for patients. Yeah, and if you look medical, legally, ethically, we have the ultimate responsibility. Mm-hmm. There's a legal doctrine called. Respondiat superior, the captain of the ship doctrine. Some, if I refer a patient to a specialist and or to another doctor and they have a bad result, I could be sued because I referred them to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have this sacred relationship with our patients, mm-hmm. and I think that that is not emphasized enough. Uh, I had showed uh, you a graph, and I I would encourage your listeners to look up administrators versus physician growth. Mm -hmm. And it's a graph that goes from 1970 to 2009, and it shows the growth of physicians and the growth of administrators. Mm -hmm. Growth of uh, physicians have grown a little bit, but there is this quantum leap of administrators. Yeah. And I know I could probably get into trouble saying this. I want pro- you to. Okay, <laughs> and, and as you know me, Logan, you know I will. The problem in medicine is not lawyers. Okay, mm-hmm. Some of my best friends are lawyers. Mm-hmm. Okay, The problem is not lawyers. The problem is MBAs and the hospital administrators. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes back to our role as physicians we, we have abandoned because we spend too much time arguing with each other over nonsense, looking at each other as the enemy, mm-hmm. and the medical industrial complex has parlayed into this classic warfare strategy of divide and conquer. They've done a very good job. Mm-hmm. Now, is there precedence for doctors uniting? Yes, there is. You go to Europe. <coughs> I'm very familiar with the German healthcare system. Mm-hmm. In the German healthcare system, they have it's an outgrowth of the old guild system from the middle ages where the doctors are in one organization. Okay. They run the healthcare system there. What's the effect? Well, if you look at how much Germany spends proportionally of their GNP versus what we spend, it's half. Yeah. Yet, they have the best healthcare system in the world. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of the people are covered by private insurance. The difference is that by law, those insurance companies have to be non-profit. Mm. If you look at the cost driver in American health care, it is paying the, f- the profit margin, paying executives, big bonuses, yes. golden parachutes. Uh, you never hear this on TV. Why? Mm-hmm. Because it's the pharmaceutical companies that are buying up advertising. So mm-hmm. they don't want to say anything bad. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but this is pretty simple facts. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, once they started introducing the profit motive, when the, all the corporate raiders started, started realizing that, hey, we can make money in the healthcare system, yeah. that's when a lot of our problems started. Probably the greatest thing to happen to healthcare since Medicare was the fact that we got rid of preexisting conditions. Yeah, and the whole idea of an insurance pool is to get people in there with all types of backgrounds to yeah. help dilute the pool down.
0: Yeah, you have to put healthy people into the pool, because if it's just a pool of the the worst, right. it's actually just a presentation on this. It's the, the death spiral. Mm-hmm. And then the insurance cost gets too expensive <coughs> that the people that are just a little bit sick end up leaving, too. And it's just yeah. a nightmare. And I, I get really frustrated about this, because I look at healthcare as such an inelastic... Demand for service Meaning When you have a heart attack You don't care if it costs $1,000 Or $10,000 Or $100,000 You're going to go to the hospital Regardless Because you think you're going to die
1: Yet, Logan I have met patients That have delayed Seeing a doctor Because of financial things Mm -hmm. That is a reality In the United States Example In Germany Even the craziest Right-wing politician Would never Touch the healthcare system Mm -hmm. You know, trying to dismantle the health care system in Germany would be like gun control in Texas, yeah. you know, it's a non-starter mm-hmm. and why we don't have good health care in this country is a travesty, yeah. you know, there's a quote that's been attributed to Gandhi, which I don't think he really said, but it's a great quote anyway that a society is judged on how it treats its most unfortunate members mm-hmm. if you look at that, we're we're uh, socially, we're a third world country. Yes, <coughs> it's it's pathetic.
0: It's sad, and and, and I I hope things change, kind of for the better. Especially because in the day and age where the we we live in the internet age, you know, social media, it would be relatively easy for doctors to network and and like you said, unionize and get on the same page with what we're trying to go
1: after. There have been multiple events in small communities where doctors have stood up against an insurer or against a health care company, mm-hmm. they always win because it's a strength in numbers. We don't understand our power. Mm-hmm. But you'll hear other physicians say, well, it's against the law and all this. And I, I will counter with, when I hear one of my colleagues saying it's against the law, we can't unionize I want to give them a little historical context. It was against the law to rebel against George III. It used to be against the law to harbor runaway slaves. We fought a civil war over that. Mm -hmm. It used to be against the law for women to vote and for black people to vote. And had it not been for some courageous people who stood up and said, this is wrong, we would still be there. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't float in my book. We have to have people that have the courage to take some social action. because our patients' health is more important than, you know, a bottom line of industry.
0: Yeah, and even a bottom line of industry, (coughs) but also a bottom line of just physician, uh, you know, salary. You know, in the articles that you sent me, it's the doctors weren't frustrated at all by how much money they were making. You know, they were trying to make these financial incentives. You see more patients, we'll Mm -hmm. give you a 20K bonus. They all were like... I. You know, go to hell with your 20K bonus. I want just more time with my patients. I want less time in front of the computer, kind of thing.
1: And prior to this, uh, in one of the original models in the 90s, was when the HMOs came about, doctors were, were rewarded with, for not doing things and yeah. not spending money, which is equally unethical. So you now, know, physicians have become uh, very much you have to click things off. That, yep. Okay, I got to make sure this is up to date, and this is up to date. I appreciate that, and yes, it's important, but that should be a sidelight rather than the focus of your functioning with the patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still, again, not to sound like a broken record, what we do is a people business. Yeah, and I have known physicians who were terrific excellent physicians that maybe didn't have the best people skills. Mm-hmm. I've also seen doctors that were of m- mediocre competence, but their patients loved them because they took the time with the patients. Yeah, I'm not saying, I'm not excusing that, but, mm-hmm. again, this is what we do. We're not medical vending machines yeah. where you come in with certain symptoms, you put in your health care card, and you get dispensed, you know, a treatment. It's... Yeah. We went to, for most of us, we went to a minimum of four years of college, minim- uh, four years of medical school, <coughs> or three years. If you went through a three-year program, mm-hmm. we did at least three postgraduate years uh, or more. And then if we did subspecialty, that's more time. Mm-hmm. Okay, We did this not because we're interested In uh, being in a training situation, but we wanted to be experts in our field, and that is not being rewarded.
0: Well, I think labor unions have their place. You know, I was an economics major uh, at at Holy Cross when before I even knew I wanted to be a doctor. And all markets, at the end of the day, whether it's healthcare or gasoline or carpentry, they want to minimize costs, maximize profits, kind of thing. And in that process, you end up. Abusing, for lack of a better word, your employee. And so I think it makes total sense to form labor unions in certain uh, respects. But let me continue with this. So my mother is a public school uh, teacher, right? So she's part of the... I, I don't know the exact term, but there's some big National Teachers Union, right? Yeah,
1: National Education yeah. Association. Yeah, Yeah,
0: and which she loves. She's thankful for. But hey, it's not perfect either. No. You know, she gets very frustrated sometimes by her dues seem to go up every single year. And what return am I seeing? I'm actually now making less money because my salary hasn't been going up as fast as my dues have. She looks at sometimes these uh, union executives that make Probably ten times the amount of money If not more than that Than (coughs) public school teachers So she gets extremely frustrated So you know What do you have to say to that Do you think a potential physicians union Could could have some of these inefficiencies as well
1: We're masters of our destiny Um, And unfortunately In some unions Have taken on the same mantra Of a lot of organizations where we have to pay all these executives all this money and what appalls me is you have a company either going out of business or losing money they they don't lose too much money that they can't pay their executives their bonus that's a travesty that i consider that unethical mm-hmm. and you know a disgrace we have to we control our destiny and we have to take charge and say Take ownership of our profession.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: one way to do it is, you know, forming some type of collective group. Call it a union, call it a guild, I don't care. Yeah. But we need to start utilizing our role as advocates for our patients.
0: Do you see the idea of a physician's union work better in certain healthcare models, meaning? You know, let's just take a look at the Democratic Party, like Pete Buttigieg, check, 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 um, with hmm. the public option doing kind of like an extension of Obamacare. Versus the other side of the coin, like the Medicare for All kind of idea, or of course Trump. Just let's keep it, that, it is. Yeah. Don't even go there. But, <laughs> but whatever. Either way, where does where does
1: this idea almost fit best in your mind? Any 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 model. Okay. Um, I think that. Again, we have the ultimate responsibility. We have the eth- ultimate ethical obligation to our patients. Mm-hmm. We should have control over what we do to practice medicine as long as we're find- following standard accepted evidence-based guidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the different insurance companies and different healthcare companies will give lip service to that, but In reality, it's not that way. Again, I I ask you to look at the survival statistics. Is there a uh, precedent for unionization among doctors? I can think of one very clearly, Cook County Hospital, Mm -hmm. uh, where in the late 60s there was a lot of political problems there. And the House staff was frankly fed up with it and formed a union mm-hmm. to help dictate changes in the, in how care to have the care being delivered in a better manner. Uh, to this day, the Cook County House Staff Association is still live and robust. Mm-hmm. There have been small physicians unions that have started, uh, but you know we have to learn how to play with each other because mm-hmm. many times the things that make us good at what we do intelligence determination independence sometimes make it real bad for us to play with each other mm-hmm. we need to put some of those petty differences aside to again to look at you know what are we doing and how are we best representing our patients
0: yeah so you know we've been talking about this idea now so okay i'm i'm going to enter residency hopefully in uh, what a year and a half or whatever, um, so I was reading you know some of the articles that you sent me and it, it talked. There was a few instances where residents unionized mm-hmm. and they said they were like ostracized by the hospital program they went to. There was one story where um, this guy was uh, with a picket in front of the hospital, this resident, and he saw his uh, attending walk by him and like scream at him to get back in the hospital. It was really ugly in a sense. And so how would you encourage the next generation to actually achieve this goal without, like, you know, when you think of, of labor unions, you said, like, your extensive family, uh, like, like these war zones, these protests, and, like, you know, no one wants to see doctors strike for a couple of days. That would, be, that would be horrific. So how do we even achieve that goal? How, do, how would you advise us even going about that?
1: Where's the outrage of patients going without health care? More people die going without health care or having care delayed and denied, which is fundamental to the for profit health care system. You know, let's hear a justification of that. Yeah. And again, if some of us, and I will be the first person to volunteer, we'll walk a picket line and we'll be arrested. Mm -hmm. You know, if it means that ultimately. My profession is stronger, and my patients are better taken care of. Mm-hmm. We have to have the political will. There's an old saying that pain is a great motivator, mm-hmm. and we have. I don't know if we've had if our healthcare system has had enough pain yet, just for the people to rise up and say, "No, I will not take this," which is scary to think about. It really is. Yeah. And again, there. I'm not against people making money, but. I think that we have to put this in context when you're literally dealing with people's lives. You know, that's a, that's a different story. We have we for the last 10 years we have had ongoing shortages of different medications. Mm-hmm. And I mean simple things like sodium bicarbonate, albumin, normal saline, other medication. It reminds me of reading about situation in the iron curtain under soviet rule where people would line up you know around the block for you know a dozen loaves mm-hmm. of bread you know is this what we've really come down to where's the outrage why isn't this being reported in the media it's yeah. something we see every day yeah. why have we allowed this we now you know i remember when generic drugs were first introduced as the panacea for healthcare costs
0: mm-hmm.
1: and now if The last few years, we realized that generic drugs are not everything they were touted to be. Mm -hmm. They've been outsourced to third world countries where uh, the factories were allowed to police themselves. And this is the problem we end up with, Mm -hmm. where either it doesn't have medication in it or doesn't either has too little or too much or the wrong medication. Mm -hmm. You know, we. There are reasons we have regulations to govern things like that mm-hmm. to assure quality.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a it's really a terrifying endeavor <coughs> and you right. know I of course want to make changes to the healthcare system, but um I think one last thing that we really haven't touched on today is, you know, as a future physician, you know, I'm going to graduate with a hell of a lot of of medical school debt. And that's one thing that I look for look I don't look forward to, but I I want to handle. I, I <laughs> hope not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, and I could
1: it, give you some of my debt. Okay, yeah, if you want yeah. some more,
0: well, we'll trade a whole bunch for <laughs> it. Yeah. But I, it's something that I also want to be part of this this conversation because you know we talk a lot about burnout and all this stuff. But I I know me, I want to pay off that debt, and I'm I'm gonna probably put myself. Into working environments that aren't ideal because I want to pay off that debt faster.
1: Yeah, and it's it sucks to think about. And it, again, we have the big healthcare companies that dictate. Oh, you want a job here? Okay, you have to follow our guidelines, and if you don't, we get rid of you. It hmm. doesn't mean you're practicing bad medicine. You were not doing the things they wanted to do the way they wanted. Uh, that is something that, as part of a you un- a private university is something we are very very sensitive to mm-hmm. is student tuition. You students today, especially those who went to private schools, are coming out with two, three hundred thousand yeah. dollars or more in debt. I mean, it's like starting your career with a mortgage but no house. Exactly. And I think that's a travesty.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, we always have money for tax cuts. We always have money for corporate welfare. We always have money to start wars of dubious value, yet we can't take care of people. Mm -hmm. In Europe, if you go to medical school or go to college, tuition is free. Mm -hmm. You even can get a stipend to go to school. Why can't we have a system like this? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that um, loan forgiveness programs are great, but I think they're a stopgap measure.
0: Yeah. And most people who apply don't end up getting the award, <coughs> right? Like ninety percent of people, you, it's crazy.
1: That and also you may go into a situation where it's promised, and after a couple of years, oh, we didn't, we forgot to put that in writing, so you just wasted a couple of years. I I can cite chapter and verse a couple of situations where yeah. I know people who've been in that, and it is unfortunate because, like you said, you'll get into a situation where you're more. Worried about the debt and working, and you'll take on more hours and that, and that will lead to burnout too. Yeah. And again, well, as a you know, another burned out physician, fine. We'll bring in another person to replace you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a
0: it's a grim matter. We could talk about this ad nauseum for hours. We probably will. Um, So I'm going to have you back on the podcast. That was about 40 minutes right there. So I think that's a good kind of place to call it a day.
1: The
0: Join Tubi in celebrating Black History Month with the largest free collection of black cinema streaming every day of the year, including exclusive
1: Tubi Originals, Howard High, and Pass the Mic. Tubi. Watch free.